Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Study for t- today. All right, so today, with today's reading in John 12, uh, beginning in John 12, we now have the culmination of the whole reason why Jesus came. And and we've been talking about that in the previous lessons where it seemed like there was a shift that occurred with Jesus with respect to that he wasn't going to put a tremendous amount of effort and energy into trying to convert the Jewish authorities to see that his Messiahship was real. Uh, Many of the people believed in him, but what began to happen was a real line of demarcation between those that were going to believe in him and trust in him as the Savior and maybe as Messiah, though they would have had some of them some skewed ideas of what the Messiah was going to be about. But there was a real clear line of division between those people that were embracing Jesus, were accepting him, were loving him, were worshiping him, you're our Lord, uh, they didn't quite know the Savior part yet, but they trusted. And then those that rejected. And in fact, those that rejected began in earnest to try to figure out not just ways to trip him up or to make him look bad to the masses, but really the, the real breaking point for them was that wonderful moment when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And how we know that is, is I didn't include it in the reading for today, but it's, the, it's from last week, is that not only were they bothered by the fact that Jesus is the one who did the miracle and people were starting to really gravitate toward him, but they, they were determined not only to kill Jesus, but they were also determined to kill Lazarus as well. So you, you can see where once people make up their mind about belief and conviction, then, then they're, they're sort of like their heart is hardened in that position. It's like there was nothing else that was going to budge them. And so now Jesus is devoting himself to his disciples and to his followers because partly because those were the people that were supporting him and would have given him encouragement. But also because um, he knew that those were the same people that were going to have to carry on the ministry and the mission after he was gone, and the fact that they were going to have to now deal with those who opposed him. And so we'll see that even today where Jesus talks about that. He says, you know, a, a disciple is not above his master. A servant is not above his master. And if this is the way that they treat the master, then what do you think is going to happen to those who follow the master? to those who are servants of the Master, they too will face the very same persecution. They too will face the same opposition. And they have to be strong enough. They have to be uh, formidable in their faith. And it would take uh, the gift of Pentecost and the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit actually in order to make that happen. Otherwise, that probably... Um, on their own effort and on their own faith, it probably would have wilted in the, in the face of the, the kind of persecution that they would, they would receive. So again, you know, Jesus, in, in some sense, he's engaging in discipleship training. He's preparing them for what it was going to be like for them. But then they would be able to recall how did Jesus handle this? What did Jesus do? How did he turn back to the Word and in what way was the word the anchor that kept Jesus going? And in what way might that anchor, the word, be the anchor for us as we, uh, as we deal with the world as well? So we pick it up now in uh, chapter 12, verse 12. And this will be a very familiar scene to you. Um, and again, uh, John, you know, John is kind of brief in his description of things. And you'll notice that uh, in verse 12 to 14. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So again, we, we, what, what day is this? What, what day would we say we celebrate this, this, is, this event? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, yeah, that's where it comes from. Again, uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting in our, in our uh, yearly uh, church year liturgy, we, uh, I think what we do is we look at the version in Luke and perhaps in Matthew because they give a longer version of it, right? So you, if you had read those versions, you could look at this and go, oh yeah, I know there's a bunch of extra parts to the story, but John is, is, has his own reasons for giving us the uh, Cliff Notes version of, uh, of the story. But he does quote from uh, Zechariah 9 with respect to that, uh, that verse, that uh, prophecy says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was the significance of the, of the donkey? What was the significance of that? Wasn't it peace, whereas a horse would have been... Yeah, so if a king was coming in to conquer or had conquered a, uh, an enemy and then was coming back to the city to celebrate the victory, then the, the means of, uh, of transportation would have been a war horse, all right, or chariots or something like that. So there would have been an armored sort of uh, entry and it would have included also the soldiers and the generals and the armies and everybody that came in celebrating the uh, spoils of war. So here he comes in, very much a king, but already it's sending a, a real visual message to the people there that his kingship was not going to be the same as a, uh, as, a, as a warlord kind of a kingship. So let's go on to verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, uh, John kind of uh, clears up a little bit of a mystery as to why it was that on Palm Sunday, everybody turned out to see Jesus and they're uh, waving the palm branches and singing Hosanna and they're, they're praising Jesus and they're supporting him. And yet by uh, Good Friday when you have the mobs who are uh, calling for his crucifixion and they're screaming, how in the world could he be the uh, Messiah? Um, you, you, you always think, well, what happened? You know, did something happen in between that would cause these people to turn on a dime to Jesus? And I think what John does is he clears up the mystery that the people who were waving the palms and so happy to see Jesus were the ones who had witnessed or who had heard about what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. So by the time you get to uh, Thursday and Friday, uh, when the big, big arrest came and then the condemnation of Jesus, it's an entirely different group. That by then it moves from the people that were overjoyed at Jesus' coming to, to basically uh, to a mob. And the mob was being incited then by antagonizers within the mob who were uh, uh, making accusations about Jesus. And that, you could probably argue, came from the uh, Jewish authorities. So once again, though... There's that reiteration of the true motive behind the Pharisees for sure, but other of the Jewish authorities. And again, you see where their position was hardened. Their conviction was that Jesus had to go. And it wasn't really for spiritual reasons. It was more for uh, selfish or political reasons. For them to say to each other, you see, we're gaining nothing Everybody is going after him. Thoughts about that at this point? Yeah, Dan? Why was I always taught those were the same people? I know. 
I, I, I was too, and I thought, I always wondered how, what happened? How did they turn on a dime like that? But I, there's a little clue here that suggests that it was two different uh, groups of people. And it could well be, and often is, that when anger takes over a crowd of people, then the people that feel differently about it go silent. They're intimidated, they're afraid, they see the rage and the anger, and they don't want anything to do with it, okay? And to some degree, the argu argument could be made that we see a lot of that today, okay? That there's a lot of intimidation going on now, and people that feel differently or even oppose what's happening are, are too afraid. And that kind of makes sense. You know, in some sense, if you stand up to the, to the anger to, of, of a group, um, you, you're risking your life, okay? So depending on the situation. In this case, yeah, I think you could argue that way. But, but I'm like you. I always grew up with that, same, with that same story. Yeah, Tim. Well, I was always kind of taught, I mean, along the lines of what we just heard, uh, I mean, primarily it was the Pharisees really going around threatening people and riling up the crowds. Sure. They kind of just turned them against them, like you were just saying. It's like, hey, you better keep your mouth shut or we're going to throw you out of the temple or we're going to tell people about this. Yeah, that was a real threat, and we remember that back from uh, earlier in John where, um, remember the, the, the blind guy that Jesus healed on the Sabbath? He did it on the wrong day, of course. And so then when he did that, then the, the scribes and Pharisees went around telling everybody that if you trust and believe in Jesus on the basis of what this formerly blind guy was, is telling you, then we'll throw you out of the temple. So we'll basically excommunicate you from, uh, from your worship life. And you, again, you can kind of see where the last place in the world that anybody would have thought that uh, gamesmanship would be played is in the church. Oh, gee. What? Am I being naive here? Am I? Are you, are you doubting this? What, what, what? But so... And so that very often is, is something that people, when they, when they become Christian or when they become a, a, or Lutheran or whatever the denomination is, that they encounter that, it's very disheartening to realize that sinners go to church. <laughs> it's really a bummer to discover that, right? And sometimes when sinners go to church, then hypocrites show up as well. Or maybe they're one and the same. I'm not sure how that works exactly, right? But that's oftentimes one of the, the naiveness, I think, of, of, in some sense, new or idealistic uh, Christians, is that they often think that sin should stay in the parking lot, right? And so then what happens is we come into church and we're talking about the love of Jesus and how great it is and how wonderful, and then... The old Adam shows up, the old nature shows up, and uh, some of the stuff that uh, happens in the parking lot happens in the narthex. So, you know, that's just kind of what, that's what happens sometimes. So, one of the things I think that's important, at least as I think about it, is what is the difference maker when you're dealing with sin in the church or hypocrisy in the church? What, what's the thing that will keep you from becoming disillusioned as a Christian? Or that you say, well, it's not even worth it because look how everybody acts. Or you think, well, this isn't real because I'm looking at how people are acting in the church and they're acting just the same way out in the parking lot. What's the difference maker? Grace. Somebody say Grace. Okay, and what is the difference grace makes? Forgiven. The forgiveness. Forgiveness is what makes the difference. See? Forgiveness is kind of hard to come by these days. With a lot of people upset, and I would say to some degree legitimately upset about things, okay, that's good to be upset because change can occur that way. But... <laughs> Upsetness without forgiveness keeps you stuck in upsetness. And then what are you going to do after you're not upset anymore? See, forgiveness is the difference maker, okay? 
And that's where the voice of the church, Messiah certainly, but in a wider sense, the voice of the gospel somehow has to become part of the conversation as well. Okay? Because otherwise what happens is people clamor for change. That's a good thing. Change is needed. But change without being tempered by the gospel turns into an escalation of revenge upon revenge upon revenge upon revenge. And it never gets even. Have you ever noticed that? When you try, when humans try to make things even, so like, I'm putting my hands up here for those of you on the podcast. I've got one, my left hand is lower than my right hand, okay? Now I'm describing it. Am I describing it well? Would you say, those of you here, okay. So here's, here is inequality. When humans try to make things equal, the desire and the ideology is to go from here to here, Right? The problem is when humans do it and the sinful nature gets a hold of us, it's untempered, it's passion, it's, it's raw emotion, it's all that stuff, okay? We do this. That's where it goes. Now, my left hand is above my right hand and my right hand is going, hey, hey, what about me? What about me? So then the right hand does what? The right hand says, well, I want to be here too. I want to be here too. And so then the right hand goes where? Up to here. It escalates. Okay, any of you that have brothers and sisters know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? Isn't that how it works? Yeah. Always the uh, thing is the oldest always gets, the oldest always gets. How come the oldest always gets, right? So then what does the youngest say? Uh, it's not fair. It's not fair. I should have my cut too. So what does the youngest do? Is the youngest happy to be here where the oldest is? No, the, the youngest says, I want extra. Okay, and that's what happens. Okay, yeah, Peggy. I am in the middle. Explain what my position is. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so Peggy says she's in the middle, yes. and she wants me to explain what it's like to be in the middle. I am the oldest. I have no idea. <laughs> Actually, I don't even care about who's in the middle. This and this while I'm here. So you're, look, you're here and here, and then you're looking at in the middle? I'm in the middle. Wouldn't that be a sweet place to be, don't no. you think? No, it's not. It's not a, it's not a fun place to be? Well, I see you are sitting by yourself at the table. I noticed that. I'm so glad Ann's not here today. Boy, she. Oh, yeah, she would be. That's right. She would be. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, so it, it, you, I, mean, if you, I mean, obviously, I'm simplifying things. But, it, but, but if you wanted to sort of boil it down to kind of what's going on, there's an awful lot of that going on. Now, would, would you say that the persons who are at the bottom or are at the lesser position, do they have a legitimate gripe? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. Okay. Now, does everything they say about life here true? No. The assumptions that they're making and the claims that they're making about these people here as opposed to these people, that's not true. But it makes a better case. And you can get people riled up down here if you can find flaws in here. The problem is, again... If I'm going to do that, then what's going to happen is I'm going to not get to here. Why would I want to be here? Because then I'm just the same as here. And I've already said all the bad things about here. So I got to go to here above that in order to not be like this. And see, that's the problem when forgiveness is not, when God's grace is not the, the founding thing, when it's not the way that you're, if you're not grounded in God's grace, then what are you grounded in? Self. And the problem with self is that we have a sinful nature. And you want to see sinful nature kick in, just have somebody kick sand in your face. Just have somebody come along and insult you in some way. Some, somebody come along and be mean to your friend. Somebody come along and take something away from you that is legitimately yours. And sinful nature will blow up inside 
And it will take action and it will feel totally justified in doing it. Even if it brings harm to people around you. So see, the gospel has a, has, is a real player here. I think, I think the key is the gospel. Because the gospel says to us, if I'm here and you're here, that isn't right. What does the gospel say? My job is to do what? Gloat over you and enjoy my privilege or whatever it is that they say I have? Okay. What if I take this, my position, and come to you and build you up? What if I do that? And I think to some degree, maybe that's kind of part of what we're supposed to be doing. Kind of hard to do when somebody's yelling at you, but I, I think that, that maybe that's part of the task. So it's just a, a little bit of a different perspective here, I think, in, in some sense. And you see, that's what we were seeing in Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, they saw themselves up here. Politically, the Romans saw themselves up here. Okay, there was tons of that thing going on. And when that happens, eventually people get tired of it and they say enough is enough. The problem is, if enough is enough, is not gospel-driven. If it's not founded on the gospel then uh, sinful nature kicks in, and now I, I will overdo you. Okay? Any thoughts about that? That's what's happened to our country today. That is, I think so. I mean, I, I think so, at least societally, yeah. And it's, They're not following the Constitution at all. Well, again, I'm not going to get into whether we are or we aren't, because I'm not a scholar on that, but I'm just looking at the issue of, of, the, of, the, of the motivator as being not gospel-driven. And, and maybe some of that's on us who are gospel-driven people that we haven't been thinking enough about loving the neighbor as we love ourselves, okay? And that would be, that's kind of on us, you know? I mean, I, I, I'd like to know more about the way that I haven't been loving the neighbor as myself. It's just as hard for me to hear people tell me that when they're, when they're yelling at me and throwing things at me. It's hard for me to do that. It's also hard for me to hear it when it's not, uh, when it's not coming across with forgiveness attached. See, that's, that's the part where I think that it's making it harder to hear than it's making it easier to hear. So we have a couple of hands, yeah. No, I appreciate you're the firstborn, and maybe the firstborn doesn't always know they have that higher position, that privilege, because they've always had it. Therefore, oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, firstborn privilege. Right, so yeah. you, using your analogy, yes. that, you know, I think those of us who are in a position of privilege, we don't realize we have privilege, because yeah. we've always had it. Well, that's true, because I've always been the firstborn. Right, so those of us in the middle... <laughs> And, you know, the dark. Oh, okay. <laughs> so let's have everybody who's in the middle stand up and go over there and sit down. How about that? Yeah. Well, but, but yeah, but that wouldn't that sort of, you would get tired of having to always look up and only see the firstborn. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of how that is? Yeah. How many firstborns do we have in here, by the way? Oh, yeah. Okay. We sort of timidly raise our hands, given the 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 mob of the middle child is is here. Well, yeah. Dependent if they're brothers or I have just brothers. You had just brothers. So if you ask my dad, I was up here. Oh, because you would be the favorite, because you were the girl. Yeah, that's how it was for Victoria. Victoria the same way. Yeah. Do you know there's another dynamic here? Yeah. In that day. The Pharisees act like they were the ones on the top. Yeah, I know. But it was really the Romans that were on top. Just like the firstborn. Sure. The parents are really on top. Yeah. And, and they get misidentified. And I think that's kind of what's happening. Even within the country is we're identifying this group over here, you're the privileged. Right. But they're not. No. In fact, how many of you would know about or think about the pressure that goes along with being the firstborn, if we're using that analogy. What sort of pressure might there be on firstborns that the middle kid and the youngest would not have? You set the standard. You set the standard. So usually when, you know, people that study this is kind of interesting, that the firstborn usually is the one that the parents want that kid to turn out to be perfect. Right? 
And so what happens is, is that the standards and the expectations of behavior are way higher. They're way higher. Now, this is really true in German families. I mean, I grew up in a, a German heritage family. I mean, we didn't speak German, but still my grandparents did. And so there was a high standard of that. And I know I've talked about this before, especially in clergy families. This was, uh, this was the deal. So I'm the oldest of 44 grandchildren on my mom's side of the family. Okay? Um, so that's how many grandkids. How many pastors do you think are in my uh, family of grandkids, um, given the fact that my grandparents, both, my grandfathers both were pastors, Lutheran pastors, and a lot of my uncles were. So that the next generation is the grandkids. So how many do you think there are? Five. No, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Now, now, again, you know, God called me and all that. I get that. But, but nobody else needed to be one after me. Right? So there was always a pressure, not that anybody ever said anything. It was never like, oh, you shall do this. It was more of, uh, oh, you'll make such a fine one. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just part of the dynamic that when you're the standard bearer, or seen that way, then you're going to be the one that has to live up to the expectations that everybody has. So there's a lot of pressure on the firstborn. My, my theory is that by the time they get to the middle and then the, the last ones, they're so tired and they realize it won't do any good anyway because kids are going to do whatever they want to do. I mean, you know, and so I found often for myself that being this, being this person that I really wish that I could be this person. Okay? I don't wish that anymore because I see how my siblings have turned out and I really am the best. Yeah. So anyway. So anyway, but it's just, you know, it, it, we have fun with it now, but I'm just saying that this, there's a lot of family dynamic that's going into this. And, there, and sometimes the anger that people express being here, yes, they're, they're projecting the anger onto here. But the anger really is about something different. And right now it's hard to discern that because there's so much rage and there's so much um, loudness that's being expressed about it that we're all very tempted to just pay attention to the, where the loudness is coming from and not really look at a deeper way. I would say that somewhere in there the gospel has to come back into prominence. And that, I would say, is the voice of the church. I don't think we can expect the world, politics, people uh, that have some vested interest in how things turn out, business, whatever it might be, uh, we, I don't think we should expect or look for uh, the gospel voice to come from there. The gospel voice comes from here. And that sort of means you have to stand up for it and with it and in it and be the voice of that. And you have to kind of find your audience, so to speak. And I would, I, would, I would encourage that, okay? I've been looking for my audience. And I found, I found a, little, a little audience, I mean, not just in here, I'm talking about outside of here, where um, there's some thoughtful discussion going on. And that's kind of, to me, where the answer's going to be. So, yeah, who else had their... Oh, yeah, Bill. What about... Uh, are we, are we the firstborn or the lastborn? Are we just confused? Say that again. You're saying something kind of interesting. I just, I'm trying to I'm follow the you. Child. Oh, you're the only child. Do <laughs> you know, I look up or look down? Well, that is its own thing. Do we have any other only children in here? Oh, look no at that. I have idea what you guys are talking about. Yeah, really. <laughs> but you know what? When you were listening and going like this, you were faking me out so well. You know, actually, um, that would be its whole, I mean, there was, a, at one time in my life, I was an only child for about a year and a half. Those were sweet days, let me tell you. And then my sister came along, and then there's the two of us, we're a year and a half apart, and then it was the five-year incremental plan after that uh, with, uh, uh, with more siblings coming. And my sister and I have talked about that, that how sweet life was when it was just the two of us. We, <laughs> kind of talked about that a little bit yeah so that but but again it's it in some ways for only kids that might be 
a little tougher because the expectations are uh, to, to live, live up to something, and there's nobody behind you to blame. See, <laughs> who are you going to dish it off on, right? And yet, at the same time, that idea of finding who you are, finding your voice, which all of us have to do eventually anyway, becomes a, becomes a paramount thing. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, Bill, I don't know if there's any hope for you or not. I just don't know. But, but uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Richard? I, I guess the thing about it is it's interesting. My father was essentially an only child. His half-sister was quite a few years ago. Yeah. The thing that he talked to my sister about, because she gave a lot of direct care before he passed away, yeah. what he could never understand about us three kids is when we would do something for the other one. Oh. It just boggled his mind. Why would why would Richard do that? Or why did Margaret do that? Yeah. He was totally confused. Wow, that's something. Yeah. So, I mean So you guys were so teaching you're just confusing you. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys were teaching him what that was like and the merit of that and the value of that. Yeah, it's very good. All right, well, let's, uh, I don't have no idea how we got off on that, but I'm sure glad we did, because I, I think that that's, again, part of the, part of the voice that, that, we, that we, I say the church, has to offer. And now is not the time for us to be timid of that voice. But we do have to figure out how do you, how, how do you deliver the voice in the midst of many voices that are clamoring to outdo each other. How do you do that? And I think that um, would require and, and would be worth it to invest some, some, some thinking about that. Okay? All right, so let's go down to verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so some Greeks. So um, the commentaries suggest that these were Greeks who were proselytized to Judaism. All right. So in other words, these were people who had forsaken their pagan Greek beliefs and and religious practices, uh, but they weren't circumcised. So they weren't all in, as we would say. Okay. Uh, the, the true Jews, and this was a big deal in Judaism, that a true Jew was somebody who had been circumcised and then also had been born a Jew and then also was following the letter of the law. That's what they talked about in terms of being a good Jew. What does it take to be a good Jew? Right? So these would have been people seen as lesser. And again, sometimes in religions where there's a heavy emphasis on obedience, a heavy emphasis on following the rules or following the laws, that's what sets up this sense of hierarchy. Because inevitably what starts to happen is people start comparing who is obeying better than others, who's following the law more in a more pure way than others. And instead of seeing everybody as one, it's more of the greater and, uh, and the lesser. That tells you a little bit about the fact that the law by itself cannot change hearts. Because we all set up our little kingdoms using the law. The gospel is what changes hearts. Because what the gospel does is it creates a new creation inside of me. And that is that alone is the only thing that can overcome the sinful nature. Does that make sense, saying it from that perspective? So you see, that's why we just need to make new laws. Oh, that'll, that'll fix things. <laughs> well, we just need more of them. That's what we need is more of them. No, it doesn't fix things because the issue is the heart. The issue is not 
uh, not just simply whether you follow the rules or not. And I'm in favor of rules. I would be because I am the oldest and, uh, and we <laughs> like rules. Okay. So, so they want to see Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. Why did they go to Philip and not just like go to Peter or not go to Andrew or not go to, I mean, they would have known who these others are. Or why not just go to Jesus? Why not just go to the big guy? Why go to Philip? Philip's name is Greek. So they figured out we're going to go to the guy that we know or who is like us, right? And so then you see a little bit of the way they did things. So Phil, what does Philip do? He goes, well, I don't know what to do. I better go ask Andrew because Andrew is who? Peter's brother. Yeah. Well, if anybody would know, Andrew would know. Okay, so then Andrew goes, well, I don't know. Why don't we go together? <laughs> right? I mean, this is kind of how it was. So they both went together, and then they told Jesus. Now, John does not record for us whether the Greeks ever got to see Jesus. We assume that they did. Okay, the, that would be a good assumption. But then notice how Jesus responds. He says, the, an, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about this idea of the glory of God. Okay? And one of the things that we sort of wrestled with a little bit, and I think people today are wrestling with this as well, is what is it that I have in my mind that the glory of God ought to consist of? Versus what is the glory of God in God's mind that is going to be the way that he manifests his glory? Remember when we talked about that? So if you think about your own idea or you would sort of complete the sentence, God is glorified when, and then just fill in the blank, what would that be? Pardon? We're, we're all worshiping. Okay, so when everybody's in church, God is glorified. God's glorified anyway. God's glorified anyway, that's right. Whether we are there or not. In fact, if we weren't there, and he really wanted to use that as a criteria, he could just turn the pews into people. Well, he said, well, not your pew, of course, but that would be. <laughs> it would be the pews that have the little yellow tab right there. Yeah, that would be, that would be the way to do it. Okay? Yeah. The see, the point is, is that sometimes we get it in our heads in a very narrow way. We say, well, this is what the glory of God looks like when there's total peace on earth. Or here's what the glory of God looks like when there's no more world hunger. Here's what the glory of God looks like when I have a happy life. And if I don't have a happy life and there's not peace on earth and there's still world hunger, then God isn't glorified. And what's interesting here is that what Jesus is reminding us of is that God has an entirely different criteria for what it means to be glorified than we do. Usually our idea does not involve pain and suffering and sacrifice. And Jesus is about to say, uh, this, is what, this is how we define it. Right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how in the world could going to the cross be glorified, God? Wow. So then he brings in a kind of an analogy from uh, gardening. Any, how have you doing any gardeners here today? Oh, good, Dan. How, how are your tomatoes? I could win a tomato you could, because of the taste, the taste and the, the volume, do you have a volume as well as uh, pretty good? Yeah. How many tomato plants do you have? Uh, 28. 28. Are they in containers or are they like covering the whole block that, where you live? Cages. Yeah, cages. Oh, cages. Hanging from down or going up? Both, both directions. Oh, I need to come over to your house. <laughs> And are these the big ones? Are they the little ones? What are they? Oh, you are the man. Let me tell you. Well, so this reminds me of when Victoria and I first got married. And we were, uh, first call was in uh, Missouri. Okay, if I share this story. I'm already doing it, so. Um. And so what did we think? We didn't know anything, did we? Because we were from the city. And we thought that if you plant a tomato plant that you probably are going to get one or two tomatoes out of each plant. And we thought, that would be perfect. And we'll stagger the plantings so that we can get two tomatoes per week 
for the growing season. And this, when we were in Missouri, this was a small community. It was a, Salem is like the county seat, but it's only like 5,000 people. So very rural, you know, really great people, just very rural. And so what did we do? We went to the tomato store and we bought the plants. And how many did we put in? 20. We put in 20 plants. And, and kind of what we did was because we had this plot of ground, because we were on an acre, wasn't an acre and a half, something like that, where we lived. And so one of the guys came over who had a tractor, and he tilled it all up. Another guy came over who had a manure spreader, and, and it, did, it was perfect. It was just wonderful. I loved it. But we put in 20, 20 plants. And so then what happened? I know what happened, yes. We had, it was more than two tomatoes per week. It was probably what, like... I learned a can. She learned a can. That was excellent from that. Yes. Yes. And then what also happened was we didn't realize that everybody in the church also had 20 tomato plants. (laughs) And all the tomatoes came in at the same time, and they wanted to give us the tomatoes. It was just, it was like tomato heaven is what it was like. Okay. So anyway, that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, unless a grain of tomato falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If you, take, if you buy a package of seeds, you open it up and you go, well, these are dead. I don't know. Why did we get these? We shouldn't have paid for these. And so what do you do? You throw them out, you dump them, put some dirt on top of them. And what happens to the seed in the ground? It germinates, right? All of a sudden you have the miracle of life. And he says, if it dies, which it does, then what happens is something comes out of it and it bears, it bears much fruit. So then he goes into this part about then, what does that mean for us? Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world. Now, the word hate is troubling, isn't it? Because, partly because that sounds so like, oh, Terrible self-esteem if you hate yourself, okay? And because that word hate is used today in our society, it's seen as a very mean thing. It's seen as a, you know, a hate speech people talk about, they making all kinds of claims about what that is. But it's just that I think in some ways that definition has been co-opted by uh, society today. So when Jesus uses the word hate and, and love... It has to do with choice. And the choice has to do with uh, one's devotion, one's worship, one's sense of, of grounding and purpose and security in life. And so what he's saying is, if you love your life like that, and the only thing that matters in your life is you, then the problem is eternally you're going to lose it. Because there's no room for Jesus, there's no room for God. But he says, whoever hates his life in this world, in other words, that the choice that you're making in terms of devotion is not solely yourself, but is also God, he says, will keep it, what? For eternal life. So there's a little bit of a a choice there, is there not, in the sense that are you going to devote yourself only to yourself in this life and who cares about anybody else, including God? Well, you might be very prosperous. You might have a lot of people around you that would say, hey, I want to be your friend. Right? Your business might do well. But what's it going to cost you eternally? And is it worth it? That would be a choice people have to make. Yeah, Dan? Isn't there another verse that's something about hate your father and mother? And they use the word hate in the same manner. Yeah, it's the same idea. It's that it's all about this idea of that of the choice of, of devotion, right? If that your li- if if you think of your life this way, if if your life and the security and purpose and joy you have in life is all about pleasing others and not thinking about pleasing God, then it's going to cost you. See? There's something, that, something interesting about that. Okay? So then he says, hey, anybody that serves me has to do what? Follow me. Now, what does follow mean? Like walk behind? What does follow mean? 
Is this not mine or yours? I am. I didn't know which one was mine. I didn't. There's, you know, I, I love having her sit right here on the front row. It's just, it's excellent. Okay, I'll just drink out of both. Um, follow. These are little moments here. Um, what does follow mean? If you, if, as he's using it here, anyone who serves me must, must follow me. What does that mean? Believe. It is certainly believe. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Be like me. Do what? Be like me. Be like me. So you're, now you're talking about live, how I do my life, right? Yeah. That how we do our life is reflective of serving him. So see, serving him is not just simply, a, it's very popular today to talk about cognitive uh, constructs. The idea that, well, it's just in your mind, but it's not real. Okay. Jesus is saying, if you want to serve me, that involves following me, and following me involves doing my word, right? That's what he's talking about. And where I am, there my servant will be, and if anybody serves me, and here's the promise, the Father will honor him. See, part of the problem today for a lot of people is that if you follow Jesus, and you're obedient to Jesus and his word, it may cost you friendships, it may cost you standing in the world. It could nowadays cost you your business. Because people are now getting fired from, from jobs for following uh, gospel principles. It can cost you now. And we always end up kind of weighing that a little bit. Is it really worth it then to follow Jesus? Gosh, what would I, what, how would I survive? What would happen? Well, the promise here is is that if you serve me, the Father will honor you. So the honoring may not necessarily happen in this life. We kind of wish it would. But for sure it's going to happen in life to come. And that's the, that, was, that was the reality that uh, Christians experienced, especially after Jesus uh, uh, ascended into heaven. The level of persecution that went on in the early church was significant. Eventually, it wasn't just the Jews that were persecuting the Christians, but it was actually the government then was, was persecuting the Christians. So, you know, we sort of look at that and we wonder, ooh, is this, are we kind of going that same direction? Okay, uh, six more minutes. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. But the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Boy, is that ever a truth there. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. See, again, it makes a difference what grounds you. And if what grounds you is the word of God and the, the power of the gospel, then you have the light. Anything else is not the light. It might be a, a pretend light. It might be a fake light. It might be a, a, a light. Uh, it might be darkness and light clothing. You know, it could be. It's not. But it's not real. It's not something that truly, actually, can have a have a, an impact on a person's life. The word of God and the gospel is the only thing. And you see, that's why, particularly in Lutheran world, and particularly in conservative Lutheran world, it's a big deal to us when when somebody goes after the word. It's a big deal. When somebody says, well, 
Maybe Jesus said that or maybe he didn't. Or when they say, well, you know, that was written 2,000 years ago, so, you know, is it really relevant for us today? And in a lot of church bodies, that, that, those questions are being asked and they're not being answered in a firm way. In a lot of church bodies, the Word of God, the Bible is not the Word of God. Only parts of it are the Word of God. And so that's one of the things I'm really grateful for being in a conservatively, in a a biblically conservative church, is that the Word of God is itself the Word of God, and God works through that Word, and, and that grounds us. And we're willing to fight for that. We're willing to defend that. Because if you don't have it, then you don't have anything that's going to be the light to show you the way in the darkness. Does that make sense? See, it's a, it's a big deal. Okay, uh, closing thoughts. Anybody want to get in the last word? Nobody does. All right, well, then I'll get in the last word with prayer. How about that? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. Especially now as we're, we're digging deeply into uh, the part of John where Jesus is now, his, his course is set. He is, he is going to the cross. He always was, but now we can see that in a very clear and succinct way. And so Lord, help us to, uh, as followers of Christ, help us to, to truly appreciate uh, what it costs for him to do that but also the love that he had for us in doing that in going to the cross and suffering and dying for our sins and then rising again for our forgiveness. Help us not to take that for granted, dear Lord, especially in these days, but help us also to really truly see uh, and trust in the power of your grace and the power of forgiveness to make a difference in a world that is clamoring for something to change but doesn't really know what change it is that it wants. So help us, Lord, to be the voice of that change, but the voice of change that is not filled with anger, but rather the voice of change that is filled with the love and the grace you have for us and for all people. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.